I was sitting at the breakfast table this morning watching my children. I don't know if other parents do this, but every once in a while I like to just watch, observe my children in their natural habitat. I get so busy with the details of their lives. I spend more time than I had imagined on spelling words and worksheets. I forget to just see them. And on top of that, my star word this year was play, which was a clear sign from God to take a deep breath from all the stuff of life and just enjoy myself. It's okay for laundry to go unfolded or sit in a basket for a few days. The clothes will still be there. My son wanting to play baseball with me won't last but a handful more years. So I want to take those moments and hold them nearby. Anyway, I was watching them and thinking about how just totally different they are in so many ways. They all come equipped with theoretically the same genetic code. I know there are math and science nerds who will be able to quote to me the exact probability of different genetic alignments based on four simple options, but they share the same base, the same parents, the same house, but their personalities are so different. And I don't think that's unusual to my family. I look at my siblings, one older, one younger. We all share, theoretically, the same genetic code, had the same parents, went mostly to the same schools, and yet couldn't be more different adults if we'd set out on that life plan. Except maybe we are more similar than we'd like to admit to being. I mean, not my sister. She is her own special butterfly, and my brother is very different from me. So different. He's a Presbyterian pastor history nerd who likes to read and study and learn new things, talks a little too loud and a little too fast, watches baseball fanatically, raises chickens, has too many children, lives in a manse, drives a van, and went to seminary in Pittsburgh. But other than that, we are totally different. I mean, he's a Pirates fan, for God's sakes. Unforgivable. There are moments in our family of such blissful joy when everyone is laughing together, all on the same wavelength, pulling the cart in the same directions, working as a team, being present for one another, showing kindness and compassion. And then there is the rest of the time. Throw a little bit of stress in there, a little bit of frustration, a misplaced toy or a lost shoe, and all bets are off. Or when there's a class of personality where one of us wants to read while the other wants to play. Or our different viewpoints on the world show us different sides of the same coin, but we just want to be right. For the other person to just see how our window is the correct window through which to view the world. And it is. It's the correct window for you. But it isn't necessarily the correct window for them. You may be taller and they shorter, or you have 20-20 vision and they need goggles, or you are a Steelers fan, God bless you, and you see the world as good when the Steelers win, while our family sees that as bad. Both are right. Both are true. Both are the correct windows. It's just that we are different people looking through the glass. It turns out most conflict happens between two people who are right. They are just different. Or actually, most, most conflict happens between two people who are right, but the same. 
the same, but just slightly different. We all want to avoid conflict. Even for people who have a relatively high tolerance for conflict in its aftermath, conflict isn't something we want to engage with because conflict brings with it so many attendant side effects. It can make our heart race and our palms sweat and lead us into nervousness because we aren't sure about the outcome of the conflict. So we avoid it, or we try to. But the truth is, conflict is not avoidable. You can try. You can push it down the road, but those bits of your personalities that rub up against each other aren't going to change. You are not going to be able to lower someone else's windows. And sometimes there's a giant ravine between the two paths you are walking down together. The conflict is always there like a pebble stuck in your shoe or a lone cloud which follows you overhead. You can push the conflict down the road a bit or try to find a side path around the conflict or invite someone else to carry the conflict for you, but the conflict will still be there. And the longer you avoid it or route around it or the more you push it off onto someone else, the bigger the rock grows until it smushes all the people in its path. The root or core of the problem doesn't just go away. It just gets bigger and harder to dismantle. You can dissolve a pebble with a glass of Coca-Cola, but stones take sledgehammers. You can't avoid conflict. You only can choose the time and the manner in which it gets addressed. Which takes us to myth number two. Conflict isn't bad. It isn't bad or a negative thing. Having disagreements with someone else isn't bad. It doesn't make you a bad person or mean you have an awful relationship devoid of any good qualities. Sometimes conflict is stressful or thorny or energy taking, but conflict isn't bad. Conflict only hurts or harms or explodes when it's been put off too long to resolve safely. You can resolve a disagreement about the best route to take to school in the morning. You can't solve a five-year pent-up frustration because your spouse constantly sidesees, drives and tells you how to break and when to break. And for God's sakes, can you see the car? You don't need to yell the car. It just scares the wits out of me. And that's what caused me to drive into the curb. That felt good. Every pastor I know asks the nominating committee about the conflict that is happening in the church. I always framed it as, tell me about the last time there was a conflict in the church. What happened and how did you address it? You know what the scariest response was? The one most likely to get a pastor to move on? We don't have any conflict. Because it just isn't true. It isn't reality. You can't put people in a room together and not have disagreements and rubbing up against each other in a broken casserole dish somewhere in the midst of it. There are only five personalities in my family, and if we make it through the day without someone getting mad at someone else, it's a highly unusual day. I mark it on my calendar. Some of us have windows, and some of us are doors, and most days those are going to bang up against each other. It's an inevitable and healthy part of life together. Churches without conflict are dead, or well on their way to dying. 
Churches where everyone agrees are not healthy and thriving congregations because churches where the Spirit is moving, where ministry is happening, where Jesus shows up, have all kinds of different personalities and opinions and thoughts and feelings are invested in one another and what God is doing in their little corner of the world. And that inevitably brings conflict. Churches without healthy conflict are dead or dying. So what is healthy conflict? Jesus helpfully tells us in Matthew 18. The first step is recognizing there's a stumbling block which needs to be addressed. We're awfully good at pretending everything is fine. It's a honed part of our conflict avoidance system. So the first step Jesus lays down here is acknowledging there's a discussion which needs to happen. We're also awfully good at dehumanizing the other person or de-child of God in the other person. It's easier to label each other as mean or uncaring, arrogant, loud, hard-headed, stubborn, stuck in their ways, or too eager for change and wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The truth is the other person just sees the world differently than you. And in most cases, they aren't a bad person. They just like reading books and you like watching TV. And that's a resolvable problem if we just talk about it. The other person isn't trying to hurt you or harm you or defeat you or keep you down. They just don't know what's in your heart because you haven't told them in most cases. That's why the second step is talking directly with those persons who laid down the stone in your path in the first place. We tend to try to go around or behind each other, or we try to get other people to pick up the rock and throw it for us, but that only broadens and deepens the divide. Because now, instead of two people who need to resolve their issue together, you go one or two or three more people mad or upset on your behalf. And instead of a small pebble which is easily solved or thrown off the place, you have a boulder which causes an avalanche. Jesus tells us the ultimate sign of respect for another member of your faith community is speaking directly to them as an equally beloved child of God to try to resolve the issue at hand before it builds up and spreads and destroys. I know this conversation will be hard and hurtful and will only lead to destruction if you avoid it. And yes, it will be hard, but it will only be destructive if you both enter the conversation wanting to be right and to convince the other person of your rightness. Paul tells the people of Corinth their problem would be resolved if they enter into conversation with the humility of seeing and discovering the other person's point of view. Do you see how you're eating meat dedicated to idols, though you have freedom to do so, causes a stumbling block for your fellow believers? Paul goes on to say, if you sat down at table with them and listened, really listened to their point of view, you might learn something. You might grow something better and healthier and freer between you. Talk to the person, not about the person. And don't get a fall guy to do the dirty work for you. Talk to them. Learn their point of view. Listen to their story and their reasoning. You may not agree with it, but the relationship will be stronger after. Sometimes the issue is unresolvable. Though sometimes it's not as often as we believe it to be. In those cases, you can go your separate ways. It's the agree to disagree position or the I'm sorry we can't agree about this position. Only you can decide at that point if it is worth walking away from the entire relationship. It might be. But most times, most days, 
If we follow the steps of healthy conflict Jesus lays out for the early church, the dissolving of the relationship isn't necessary because we will have, along the way, learned to see each other more clearly and gotten a glimpse out of each other's windows long enough to see Jesus is outside both of them in the yard, waiting for us to follow. We are going to bump up against each other if we walk through this life together. It's not avoidable. We only get to choose the time and place and manner of the dismantling. When we share what's in our hearts with the person who keeps stepping on it, and that person is open and available to hear your story and point of view, when we take that brave and courageous act of naming and sharing our perspective with another, when we pull a stool over or kneel down to see out the window to the world our fellow children use to frame their experience of the world, our relationships are stronger. The longer we avoid each other or use other people to speak for us, the more damage we cause. Nobody is right all the time and nobody is wrong all the time, unless, of course, they broke your casserole dish. Talk. Listen. Learn a little about each other and see if maybe the world doesn't open up with new possibilities for both of us. You choose.